0: The video takes the perspective of Paul in his interactions with the Philippians. And for today's message, we will look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11, where we hear a confession of sorts from Paul. We will see his motivation and his heart. Before we get into today's message, let us pray. Father God, we ask again that you make your word live to us. As we take in your word, show us yourself clearly. Show us who we are really and show us our deep need for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you make your word live to us, change us and renew us so that we will increasingly grow to become more like Jesus Christ. For Jesus' name's sake and for your glory. Amen. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. A number of prominent and successful business people have said this in different forms and ways the reason is if you do not do this you will drift from your core business you will drift from your key mission and the entire organization will lose its way as a result many business leaders often remind their organization what their main thing is in order to prevent their people from forgetting what is key to their business and to prevent mission drift. And we see Paul here, right in the middle of his letter to the Philippians, coming back again to the main thing of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does this so that the Philippine Christians do not drift from the gospel. He does this so that the church do not forget what is key to their life and ministry? He warns them first of those who are just the gospel. He then gives a personal confession of sorts of how Paul himself could have added to the gospel as well. And finally, he explains the gospel and the change and impact it has on him. So if you have your Bibles, please open up your Bibles and follow along with me as I read what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We have seen from the video, it gave us a a review, and it gives us a preview of what is to come. So we realise that it's very important for us In order to better understand what Paul writes, we need to recognize the context and background of these verses. Remember, Paul expresses joy and thanksgiving throughout his letter to the Philippians. And this is because of their partnership with him in the Gospel. The Philippian Christians are co-workers with Paul in the proclamation of the Gospel and the helping of others grow in the faith. The Philippian church also contributed financially to help Paul in the ministry. And Paul sees that God is working in their lives and he is confident that God will complete his work in them, that God will enable them to continue to grow in the faith. He encourages them to maintain this joy in the gospel gospel, by cultivating humility that fosters unity in the church. Paul gives them the example of self-sacrificial service seen in Christ, Timothy and Epaphroditus. In their humble service to one another, the Philippian church will be a testimony to the watching world, thereby furthering the cause of the gospel and multiplying joy in Christ Jesus. In today's passage, Paul calls them to a joy that is founded on the gospel. He warns them specifically against adjusting the gospel, for this will rob them of the joy of the gospel. You know, when I was younger, I didn't want to be a pastor or a teacher. I actually wanted to be a Michelin star chef. (laughs) Yep, that was my ambition. I wanted to be a chef. And I like learning different new recipes and personally tasting different dishes. And one of the things I've tried to learn how to make is egg benedict and for those who have tasted it you know that the key to the recipe is well poached eggs now imagine if you're with me and I'm cooking for you a meal of egg benedict and I decided to be smart and adjust the recipe so instead of poached eggs I decide to leave the eggs to fully boil instead after all Eggs that are not fully cooked can carry the risk of Salmonella bacteria, right? So why don't you fully cook it? And why just serve a simple egg with Hollandaise sauce? Let me improve the taste further by replacing the sauce and adding spices. Red pepper, cumin, coriander, turmeric, onions. And then I serve you the dish and say, come, enjoy the dish of Egg Benedict. And what do you do? If you look at me, you think me silly. Because the dish before you now is egg curry and not egg benedict. It has been adjusted beyond recognition. And this is similar to what a group of false teachers in Philippi is doing. They are adjusting the gospel so that it is no longer the gospel. And Paul strongly warns the Philippian church against them in verses 1 to 3. We see this in these verses, verses. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. What we see here, Paul again exalts the Philippian Christians to rejoice in the Lord, and this prepare the way for his uh, warning. Paul war- writes to warn them in verse one, and tells them it's okay for Paul to repeat what he has already told them, and Paul does this because it will be safe and good for the church to hear and heed his warning in verse 1. And what does Paul warns the Philippian church about? What does Paul warns the Philippian church about? He warns them of the evildoers. He alerts them to those who mutilate the flesh, verse 2. The thing is, the word mutilate here is a play on the word circumcision. Paul is actually referring to the Judaizers, the false teachers who tell them that to really be a Christian, you need to keep Jewish customs. And in this instance, these false teachers specifically refer to the ceremony of circumcision. So in essence, what they, their message is, is they, the gospel is not enough. They tell people that the gospel is not enough. These false teachers insist that to be truly safe, you need the gospel plus Jewish ceremonies. And what is Paul's response here? You can look at the verses. Paul uses very strong language in his warning. And we can almost hear and feel the force of his words. He denounces the Judaizers. He calls them dogs. Now, how, how we like it if someone calls you a dog? It's a derogatory term even at a time. And the Jews use it for Gentiles, unbelievers. He says that they are evildoers. He calls them those who mutilate the flesh. They are like the pagan magic practitioners who cut their own flesh. The Judaizers think that they were honoring God. But what they were doing was profane instead. We need to note the strong word Paul uses in his warning. He does so because these Judaizers were teaching a false gospel a false gospel that robs joy, brings slavery and condemnation, rather than salvation. Instead, Paul tells the Philippine Christians that they are the true circumcision. Verse 3. While the Judaizers rely on external ceremonies, Christians, when we trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are truly circumcised. Paul tells us elsewhere in his letters, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. You truly belong to God. You truly belong to God not because of some outward physical mark. Rather, you are the people of God, the true circumcision, when your heart is circumcised or transformed by the Spirit. Our hearts were circumcised when the Holy Spirit indwells us to give us new lives and new hearts when, at the moment, we believe and trusted in Jesus Christ. Therefore, now like the Philippine Christians, we can worship, by the Spirit of God. They had placed their confidence in Jesus Christ alone and glory in Him. And the Philippian Christians place no confidence in the flesh. They place no confidence in other human achievements, works, or ceremonies to save them from their sins. What about you? On what do you place your confidence in for your salvation? How about us in church? Do we place additional requirements on others becoming a Christian? Do we adjust the gospel and add to it in our presentation of it? Are we presenting the true, unadjusted gospel? For a retail store to know whether it's making a profit or loss in a business, they will employ an accountant to record all their business transactions. Any money they make will go into the credit or gain column. Any money they lose will go into a debit or loss column. And in the end, they will tally all their transactions to calculate profit or loss. In verses 4 to 7, we see Paul doing a kind of gospel accounting, counting his gains and losses. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 7. Follow with me as we continue reading. Though I, referring to Paul, myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Paul gives his personal confession and testimony here. Having previously said that Christians boast in Christ Jesus and place no confidence in the flesh, Paul continues to tell the Philippian Christians what trusting in the flesh means. And he does this here through a personal testimony. And what a remarkable one it is. In it, Paul numbers the privileges of his Jewish descent and his personal achievements in relation to the law. And if you look at the list, it's really an impressive list. He showcases to the Philippian church his Orthodox Jewish pedigree and upbringing, as well as outstanding attainment in the religious and moral areas of his life. If you look at this in verses 5 and 6. Paul does this in order to show that in speaking against placing one's confidence in the flesh, Paul knows about it, so to speak, from the inside. His heritage and achievements as grounds for personal boasting were second to none. If anyone could place confidence in the flesh, it would be Paul. But what what he once regarded as the best of religious accomplishments he now looks at them to have been worthless. Paul places absolutely no confidence in human efforts or accomplishments. He, places, he does not place his confidence in ceremonies or rituals circumcised on the eighth day, nor heritage or legacy, the people of Israel, of the tribe Benjamin, a Hebrew or Hebrews, nor his keeping of rules and regulation as to the law, a Pharisee nor his enthusiasm and zeal as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, nor his moral righteousness as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see, my friends, it's not that these things are inherently bad or evil. It's that these, even the best in human efforts and achievement, they do nothing to account to him as being righteous before God. Paul counts all all of this gain as loss. All of this goes into the debit column. In contrast, contrast, the only achievement worth pursuing is the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ his Lord. Paul counts all of his human achievements as loss for the sake of gaining and knowing Jesus Christ his Lord. Verse 7. You see, in giving his confession, Paul instructs the Philippine Christians from personal experience not to place their confidence in human accomplishments, but rather on Jesus Christ for their righteousness before God. We should place our confidence in Jesus Christ and his gospel for our right standing before God. What about you? Even though, as a Christian, You know that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But do you still fall back to relying on your human achievements? Do you in your profession say that it's only faith in Christ that saves? But in your practice, rely more on your human achievements as the source of your confidence. Do you measure other Christians by human achievements? you measure them as, ah, this is a better Christian, or this don't appear to be a Christian, he's not a Christian? Or is a measure of whether he or she is a Christian, is it a measure that whether he places his confidence in Jesus Christ alone? Recently, I was once again privileged to hear the conversion testimony of a few church members it always fires my heart when I hear how people hear the gospel and they are changed and transformed when they trust trusted in the gospel. So one of them told me how he visited Grace Baptist Church in 2008 and heard the gospel preach. And once he understood the gospel and love of Jesus Christ and believed in Jesus Christ, it started to have a profound effect on him. He started to change his heart attitudes and priorities and values started changing. So much so that his then girlfriend and now wife remarked that there must be something about Christianity. After he had come to know Christ, she could visibly see the changes and she even said that knowing Christ had made him a better boyfriend. And the gospel changes in him also caused her to explore the true claims of Christianity. And finally, she trusted in Christ as her Lord and Saviour. And now they are both married and they have a beautiful baby girl. As Paul continues in his remarkable personal testimony in verses 8 to 11, Paul described the gospel change and the total reorientation of his life that has occurred because of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, Indeed, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul here, he's still employing accounting terms, and he's showing us what he means by using pet contrast. Paul emphasizes his startling re-evaluation of values. Beginning in verse 8, Paul strongly reinforces his statement of verse 7, he tells the Philippine Christians that he continues to count all his past privileges and or anything else in which he might put his confidence as loss for the sake of the incomparable value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In fact, if you look at what he says, he goes even further and he asserts that what he regards his former privileges and advantages as rubbish or revolting. The word used rubbi- uh, use translated as rubbish can also be translated ex- as excrement, feces. What a stark contrast. The best of human achievement regarded as refuse and trash. His ultimate goal for which he has come to regard all things as abhorrent, as refuse, as rubbish, is that he might gain Christ perfectly, verse 8, or be united completely, verse 9, with Christ Jesus on the final day. And in verse 9, Paul contrasts two kinds of righteousness. Paul tells the Philippian church the manner in which he will be perfectly found in Christ. That is, as one who does not have a righteousness of his own, is not something he gained by obeying the law, but as one who has a God-given, righteous status, based on Christ's faithfulness and obedience, and received solely by faith. Paul gains a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and not by obeying the law. Paul is declared as right before God because of his faith in the work of Jesus Christ on a cross. It is faith in Jesus Christ through which we are united to Him and stand as righteous before God. So as a result of faith in Jesus Christ, we are now standing in right relationship with God. In verses 8 to 11, we see Paul stating his supreme goal is to know Christ fully. Verse 10. He expands on the meaning of this in terms of knowing the power of his resurrection as he participates in Christ's suffering. And what does he mean here? I mean, the verses here if you, on first reading seems a bit strange. What is Paul actually saying here? Paul here means those tribulations and suffering through which every Christian must pass. This is the kind of suffering that he's describing. Using the language of dying, and rising with christ paul tells the philippine christian that he enters into a deeper personal relationship with his lord jesus christ as he is continually being conformed to christ's death through the many sufferings that he experiences verse 10. paul shares in the suffering and death on christ on the cross in the sense that he experiences the trials and difficulties which continue to grow him towards Christ-likeness. In the midst of them, he personally experiences Christ and His presence. Finally, Paul looks forward to attaining the resurrection from the dead. In verse 11, he can hope in his promised resurrection body. Although the precise route by which he will get it is not clear, will it be martyrdom? or by some other kind of death, or uh, by being alive at Christ's second coming. Because we need to remember, at this point, Paul is currently sitting in a prison cell. He's uncertain about his outcome of his trial. So, although Paul is certain of obtaining his resurrection life, God has promised him that. But as to the life circumstances, whether execution, eventual death in prison, release, and being alive at Christ's coming, Uh, that will usher him into his final glory, Paul does not know. However, what is certain is that the power of the resurrection life, the promise of total and final victory over death and sin when Christ comes again, is now in part a part of Paul's experience. He can have assured hope right now of the gospel promises that awaits to be fully fulfilled. He can experience part of that right now in his continual conforming to Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit. This hope and present experience will empower his Christian living and his striving in his progress towards Christ-likeness. Because of Jesus Christ, there has been a total reorientation of Paul's life and values. What about you? How has your life values and priorities change? How has the incomparable value of knowing Jesus Christ changed you? Can you look back and say, I am not perfect, but I can thank God for the changes He has effected in my life and heart because of Jesus Christ in the past year. Do you, in the midst of your suffering, show yourself to value Christ as your all? So what has it got to do with you? The goal of God's Word is transformation. And this means we need to take heed to the applying of God's Word. So what? What now? So what has all this got to do with you? I ask that you think through these three sets of questions that arises from today's passage. The first question, do we as a church place additional requirements on others becoming a Christian? do we as a church place additional requirements on others becoming a Christian? In our profession of the gospel, we say that anyone can come as they are to trust in the gospel. You can come freely as you confess your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. However, in our practice, is this so? I mean, look at our church. We are almost uniformly middle to upper class ethnic Chinese. There's nothing wrong with this. The gospel is for all, both poor and rich. But the problem is when we let it become a hindrance to the gospel. What if one day, someone very different from us walked in through our church door? Will we place additional requirements on that person to becoming a Christian? Will we be able to accept the drug addict that is hurting or the international worker that is alone in a foreign land or the ex-convict struggling to find acceptance or the person who is struggling with their sexual identity would we be able to proclaim the gospel freely to them and accept them into our fellowship if they turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith Will we accept them as our Christian brother and sister and be the community in which they can change and grow to Christ-likeness? Or will we say to them, you have to first clean up your act, shape up and become more acceptable. And although we don't say it, become more acceptable and be like us before you can be a Christian. Will we, in our practice, place additional requirements on others becoming a Christian. The second question, do you place your confidence in your human achievements for your relationship with God? Do you place your confidence in your human achievements for your relationship with God? As Christians, we understand that we are to rely on Jesus Christ for our righteousness before God and not claim merit from our human accomplishments, no matter how impressive they are. I think many of you will agree to this. However, in our living and practice of our Christian faith, does guilt and pride still creep in? Could it be that we still in some way slip and start placing our confidence in our human achievements again? Have we let our participation in Christian activities, our attendance at Christian conferences, our involvement in church services and ministries, our doing of regular quiet time, or even our scrupulously obeying the commandments of the Bible determine where we place our confidence? I'm not saying that all these human efforts and achievements are bad. They are good. If done, our response of a heart of gratitude for the Gospel. If done, motivated by the love for Christ however remember they do not save us it's only true faith in jesus christ that we are saved. and one sign that our confidence is misplaced is when we often compare ourselves with others and we feel guilt when we do not match up or pride when we think we can do better and the antidote the gospel review the gospel regularly And like Paul, reorient your heart to the only firm foundation on which we can place our confidence, Jesus Christ. The last question, the last question. Do you in your suffering show yourself to value Christ as your all? Do you in your suffering show yourself to value Christ as your all? When you are suffering and facing difficulties, what is your response? I don't say this lightly. As I understand, there are many of you who struggle and face suffering in your lives. But as God's Word tells us today through what Paul wrote, do we look at suffering as an opportunity? Do we look at suffering as an opportunity? Do we view it as an opportunity that it will conform us to become more and more like Jesus Christ? Do we trust that our good God has planned this difficulty And suffering for our good, to allow us to be changed, to become more and more like Jesus Christ when we respond in the right ways? Do we delight in Christ's presence that often comes to comfort us in the midst of our suffering? Do we, in the midst of our suffering, show ourselves to value Christ as our all? In conclusion, Today, you have been given a gospel warning. You have seen a gospel accounting and observed a gospel change. Through it all, the key thing you have to see here is you you have seen how Paul counted everything as loss for the sake of the incomparable value of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. Oh, Jesus Christ, He is of incomparable value and our life's treasure if this is so we can sing together hallelujah all I have is Christ hallelujah Jesus is my life as we end our time together let us pray Father God we confess that our hearts are often deceived we add or adjust the gospel or we tend to place our confidence on our human achievements Father God, take our love and affections and see it for Jesus Christ. Help us to value knowing and gaining Jesus Christ as our all. May knowing and gaining Jesus be our personal experience. Teach us to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples and to help one another grow in our faith. And as we do so, may we magnify Jesus as our life's treasure. We pray pray this for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ.